The pandemic relief fraud numbers keep piling up. A billion here, a billion there. Was anybody watching? For an overview of what we know now, we turn to the Director of Forensic Audits at the Government Accountability Office, Rebecca Shea. Ms. Shea, good to have you on. Thanks for having me, Tom. And a lot of people are looking at this, certain inspectors general and SIGI and this one and that one. But GAO seems to have kind of done a meta study or maybe a study of your own. And I guess the first question is, which specific programs are we talking about here? The statement was based on some of the quarterly reports and standalone reports that GAO had done over the past three years. So it is a bit of a meta study. And we took those that were focused on fraud and improper payments issues because that was the focus of the hearing. And in the statement, we significantly feature three of the largest programs, Labor's Unemployment Insurance Program, SBA's Paycheck Protection and economic injury disaster loan programs. Uh, But there are many others that are covered in there as well. For example, we've got some information about the economic impact payments from IRS, the coronavirus food assistance program, the CFAP program for farmers and ranchers, child nutrition, restaurant revitalization, FEMA funeral, all of the things that had some fraud and improper payment risks. Yet some of these programs are creatures of the pandemic and were specifically appropriated into life by Congress acting very quickly. And the numbers were not shy, you know, a trillion dollars for this, 800 billion for that. But programs like unemployment insurance go back to the dawn of the welfare state. And you would think that those mechanisms would be long established to prevent fraud. So is there a difference there? There are and were longstanding vulnerabilities in the unemployment insurance program. But there were also the pandemic unemployment insurance program was freshly stood up on top of the unemployment insurance. There were also actions taken to reduce the controls that were used to check some of the standard unemployment insurance claims, and then also for the pandemic unemployment insurance claims. So There were existing problems, as you say, and that's one of the things we highlight in the testimony. There have been existing problems, in particular, with improper payments. We've been looking at that for 20 years, and we saw that continue. But then when you have this great influx of funds, and then also, you know, you're asked to reduce some of the controls or minimize some of the controls or eliminate them entirely, those problems are exacerbated. Yeah, actions taken to reduce controls. Why on earth would an agency do that? Was it because of the speed and the need and the just the general political pressure to get that money out into as many hands as possible? Yeah, that is certainly one of the reasons why it happened, the need to get the money out quickly. But some of the things that we feature in the statement speak to you know broader longstanding problems. For example, we highlight the fact that agencies had not been making progress on required fraud risk management activities. These requirements were in place since 2016. And had agencies been taking steps to understand what their fraud risks are, have data analytics capabilities in place, when these programs were stood up and they needed to get these funds out quickly, they would have been in a much better position to understand what the risks are, have the tools to deal with them on the back end, you know, to understand what tolerance they should have to let the money out quickly, deal with them more of a detection capacity, but they didn't. They hadn't been making that progress. They also lacked some basic internal controls, specifically, again, we could talk about data analytics capabilities to identify and detect fraudulent claims and requests for paycheck protection and other funds. As you mentioned, I think a little bit earlier, 
we lacked a government-wide data analytics capability. We were one year into the pandemic before the Pandemic Analytics Center of Excellence was stood up, and many of the funds had already gone out the door. So the capability to bring a lot of those different data streams together to identify fraud, it wasn't until a year into the pandemic that those were in place. And then also the longstanding and proper payments issue that I mentioned. If you can't manage errors and documentation gaps, it's going to be much harder for you to manage the fraud that happens. Yeah, this is almost like a ship if it leaves and it's minutes off course, you know, not degrees, but even minutes off course. When you leave the harbor, it's only a few feet. By the time you try to reach Hawaii, you're hundreds of miles off course. It sounds like whatever little weaknesses were, were just amplified by the numbers and the speed and the sheer scale of what the nation was trying to do. Yes. We're speaking with Rebecca Shea. She's director of forensic audits at the Government Accountability Office. And do we actually know the extent yet of fraudulent dollars? I mean, there were a couple of figures that exceeded the hundreds of millions mark, and now we're into the billion threshold. Yes, it is a great question. And I really wish I had that silver bullet for you. I I don't. What I can tell you is that there are two, maybe three buckets to think about here when you're thinking about the extent of fraud. And the first bucket are those things that you can unequivocally call fraud. Those are the cases that have been adjudicated as fraud. And those are things that you can count things that you know have gone through the courts and you can count the number of defendants, the charges, the loss, the restitution ordered. And we've done that. We've counted at this point over a thousand individuals that have pleaded guilty or were convicted at trial, charges pending against another 609 of those, 779 that have been sentenced as of early January. And then of course, you know, restitutions ranging from thousands to millions of dollars, and prison sentences from, you know, a year of probation to 17 years in prison. And that's going to continue to evolve as more cases are brought forward, obviously investigated and tried. There's a point in time uh, count of the extent of the problem. And it's really important to note with this count that these adjudicated cases are the tip of the iceberg when you're thinking about, you know, all the fraud that could have happened. And that leads us to the second bucket what you can estimate about the extent of fraud from what is known. And fraud's obviously hidden crime, you know, so some of these estimates are going to be based on limited data. Data isn't always reported or reported in in the same kind of way, and that can affect your estimates. And GAO is working on an approach for estimating from this limited data, but it's got a lot of challenges, but we are working on that. Uh, We were able to develop a conservative estimate for the unemployment insurance fraud that happened. And that's because the states and labor, they have a process for doing a, a sample and estimating the amount of fraud that they have determined from claims. And when they did this estimate, they looked only at the standard unemployment insurance. They didn't look at the pandemic unemployment insurance, which we know has much greater fraud risk. And they identified $4.3 billion in fraud. We extrapolated that to all of the unemployment insurance, and that's how we developed the $60 billion estimate. That's a conservative estimate, and we're continuing work to identify a more comprehensive estimate. Yeah, that used to be considered real money, you know, to use the old cliche. And just briefly, I mean, there are government oversight mechanisms. As you say, some of them were late to get their boots on to chase the fraud and so on. Also, the states are partners in a lot of these programs, too. So this is not 100 percent a federal issue, is it? 
it is not just a federal issue. And there are a number of ways that the inspector general community work with states, the states, you know, work with the programs to recover some of the funds. So, you know, if we're thinking about recovery, some of this is going to come through the court ordered restitution, obviously, you know, that's at the federal level. But there are also, along with that, forfeitures and seizures, but there are some administrative actions that happen as well. And that can happen with the states through administrative recoveries. And the SBA OIG and and Labor OIG have also noted some of those recoveries as well. All right. So in this statement, this kind of meta survey of all of the work that has been done by various bodies, including GAO, you came up with quite a large number of recommendations. And these almost feel like spreading graffiti over Yankee Stadium. There's a lot of it and a lot of places it can go, but you wonder about the impact. So tell us about your recommendations. You know, you can't go through all 374 of them, but what do they basically cover here and who are they aimed at? As you said, we made 374 recommendations to about 26 different agencies. And a lot of them have to do with, you know, efficiency and effectiveness of emergency response and recovery for the pandemic. 38 of them had to do specifically with addressing fraud and improper payments. And, you know, a number of them were directed specifically at SBA and unemployment insurance. And we made those, I'll say in real time, you know, as we were going through the pandemic. And SBA has made some progress on those. Of the eight specifically focused on fraud and improper payments, they have fully addressed or partially addressed eight of those. So there's progress on that. There's some other things that deal with the efficiency, effectiveness that are still ongoing. And 147 overall of that broad 347 have also been fully or partially addressed. So there's progress on the efficiency, effectiveness, and then also on some of the fraud and improper payment recommendations. And then, as you mentioned, you know, this is a lot of recommendations to individual agencies. We need a more global approach, which is why the Comptroller General, in some of our other reports, we've made recommendations for Congress to take action, 19 recommendations for congressional action. We noted 10 of those from the Comptroller General's prior hearing before the oversight committees last year. And a lot of those have to do with these more global issues. You know, we need that government-wide data analytics capability to be made permanent. So we're not, you know, wasting a year getting something stood up again. Well, we know it works. It returns value for the public. We need to reinstate the reporting requirements for agencies' progress on fraud risk management. I mentioned that they were not taking action based on 2016 requirements. The requirement to report on their progress sunset in 2020. So, you know, if something's not shining, you know, no light shining on it, action is not going to happen. And there are a number of other activities like that that uh, we have suggested Congress take action on to address these things more globally. And at this point, though, the pandemic money is dispersed. So for those specific programs, the government is basically in sue and claw back mode, not prevention mode anymore. Yeah, and that's a great point. That is one of the reasons why our GAS fraud risk framework and the original requirements for agencies to manage fraud risk is so focused on prevention. You get pennies on the dollar in return, you know, when you're talking about fraud in particular. It is so, so important that we have these upfront controls and we're making well-informed decisions about the fraud risks that we are able and willing to tolerate and have a ready plan for detection and recovery on the back end. When we do you know, need to get the money out quickly, make those decisions, we need to be ready to step in and address that quickly on the back end. Rebecca Shea is Director of Forensic Audits at the Government Accountability Office. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me, Tom.
And we'll post this interview along with a link to her report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to The Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Sean Ferguson, Senior Vice President of Government Relations and Chief of Staff to the Office of the Chairman at the Special Olympics, joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss the importance of leadership, inclusion, and community building. To learn more about how you can get involved with the Special Olympics in your community, visit specialolympics.org slash get dash involved. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. What are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned working with that community? Oh, uh, yeah, almost, uh, Shane, it's almost immeasurable. The things I've learned since I've been with Special Olympics. I um, One of the things that drew me to Special Olympics uh, when I made the move over from, from the NFL uh, was that my mother, my grandmother, my aunt all took care of, of people with intellectual disabilities and, and, and physical disabilities as well. So all of my life, I was uh, interacting and around um, usually usually young people, but also adults with disabilities. And so I, I knew that I knew that work a bit. You know, they they basically were in direct care. And and I will say, and on a, obviously we'll say about my my family, my mother, my aunt, my grandmother, they're saints. Uh, but uh, the the men and women that do take care of people with uh, profound disabilities are are really um, you know we we can't do enough to salute them. Um, they're they're really heroes, and um, so I was I was drawn when I I and I just saw that you know Special Olympics was looking for someone, and I thought, well, you know, take a look at it and see, see you know, throw send in my information, and lo and behold, I I, I get hired, and um, I learn uh, every day almost something from, especially from our athletes. Uh, we're blessed to have a number of athletes that work here in our office in Washington D.C. And, you know, uh, Terrell, who, who works in, in our mailroom, who comes by with packages and deliveries. Uh, if you're having a day that's, you know, getting away from you and you, you <laughs> coffee hasn't kicked in, but Terrell comes by, always happy, always enthused, uh, has a, has a good story. Like it can just turn a day around for you. And, and, and you think of, I, I, you know, often when you'll walk away, I'll be like, you know, whatever was bothering me or whatever is, you know, stressing me out and come on, you know, like, look at, look at Terrell, like he, he, he faces everything with optimism. And, and, and I've seen that also in our going to competitions in throughout the United States and globally, you see people who have had everything stacked against them. You know, their parents, when they were born, were often told this is a tragedy and you should, you should, you know, send your, this child away. Don't, don't, you know, and kind of forget about them, Get, turn them over to the state or, or wherever. And, and, you know, that, you know, just kind of watch, watch your hands of it. Um, and, and, and in, in these cases, the parents didn't do that, thankfully. Um, and, but they've still faced enormous challenges, you know, and, but you see them out competing on the basketball courts or the football fields or swimming and, uh, and, and, you know, besting their times from from their last competition, and they're so committed, and just keep fighting through all the obstacles that they've had in front of them that are not just on the sports field, but also in growing up and finding education and finding groups to be part of and trying to find jobs and 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 I've seen so much perseverance and grit uh, from a- the athletes of Special Olympics that. Uh, 
I, I Tim Triver, my boss, the chairman, uh, says all the time, and I couldn't agree with him more. Uh, we get more than we give uh, working with Special Olympics. It, you know, we, and thank you for your very kind words about the work I do and we do. But but we're the lucky ones. We, those of us that work here are the lucky ones because I. I said to someone the other day, you know, the things that I've been able to see and experience with athletes, you just don't get to do that anywhere. That, that, you know, it's a, and it's so unique and it's so uh, joyful. And, and uh, I mean, we work hard and, you know, we we're up against, you know, the things that nonprofits are up against and, you know, the, you know, the issues of the day, but uh, man, you see it, it and, and, and the inclusion and the at special Olympics, no one's excluded. You know, no, right. no one's excluded. Everyone yep. is equal at Special Olympics. It, and, you know, in a country that's quite divided on so many lines, politically and uh, socially, uh, economically, race and uh, sexual orientation and whatnot. But you go to Special Olympics and everyone's involved. Everyone's welcome. Everyone's equal. And I've learned that it's a model for our country and for our world. Uh, I, I just think that that if if people were involved in Special Olympics in experience the power of special olympics for themselves i i I can't imagine that one help our country and help our world um to experience that true inclusion and acceptance of difference how how do we get how can listeners get involved in special olympics ways to get involved uh, tons of ways so uh volunteers obviously coaches officials um, and, and the thing that, that, that uh, Tim Shriver has done uh, and really pushed in the years that he's been chairman is the unified sports model that, that I mentioned earlier, um, where people and, and it doesn't have to be. Uh, it's not just school age. It's it's, uh, you know, we say nine to ninety nine or uh, year old uh, folks uh, that play on teams, uh, bowl together, golf together, play soccer, basketball together. Uh, people with and without intellectual disabilities competing on teams together. Um, and that is, I, I think, when you when you go back to the founding uh, of our organization, what Mrs. Tri- Mrs. Shriver was trying to do uh, was to, to uh, create inclusion opportunities for people with intellectual disabilities. And you see it at these unified sports events where people with and without are playing together. We still have traditional uh, teams where it's all people with intellectual disabilities competing with other uh, teams, all intellectual disabilities. But this model of inclusive sports and inclusive leadership programs and whatnot, I think is truly revolutionizing and changing the way people see uh, others with intellectual disabilities. That's just like, I mean, that's what we that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring people together and bridge difference and, and, and celebrate differences and that our athletes, man, are some of the grittiest people that you will meet. And, and, uh, and there's a lot to learn from our athletes and playing sports with them and interacting is, is how you'll learn it. Check us out at, you know, uh, specialolympics.org on, on our website, uh, that will link you to your local program. You can follow through the, the clicks of how to get involved and where, what's closest to you. You'll enjoy it. I can promise you that. Well, thank you very much, Sean. And, and to everybody listening, I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and we'll, uh, Talk to you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.